You are listening to Holy Words from Holy Cross, the sermon podcast of Holy Cross Evangelical Lutheran Church in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. We hope you find these words a blessing in your daily walk with God. Please visit us on the web at www.holycrossnazareth.org or in person at 696 Johnson Road, Nazareth, Pennsylvania. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Don't be all else to me, save that thou So today our sermon series um, will continue. Um, the older ones are on the uh, website, but these all stand alone also, so you can, learn, you can learn from them all individually. But we're looking at the evidence surrounding the witnesses to the resurrection, the testamentary evidence, the, the science of how you examine somebody's testimony and decide whether it can be trusted or not. And today we're going to focus on ability, consistency, and cover-up. These go relatively quickly. Um, ability, none, but none of them are quite as straightforward as you might think. Now, the question we ask when we ask the ability test is this. Were the authors of the Gospels able to preserve the historical details accurately? Now, I say it's not as straightforward as it sounds because there are people who claim they weren't able. I mean, after all, the printing press had not been invented and writing materials were relatively expensive. The earliest gospel we have is probably at least 20 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's a former Christian, a guy named Bart Ehrman, who's also a New Testament scholar, who claims there's no possibility they could get these details right, writing at such a late date, because it's a lot like the telephone game. Now, do you guys remember the telephone game? How many of you played the telephone game growing up? And you play the telephone game, or they call it whisper down the line. You, you, or you, some, someone at the beginning of the line comes up with something they say, and they whisper it to the next person. It goes down, whisper, 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 whisper. When it gets to the last person, they say what they thought was said at the beginning. And everyone has a good laugh because it's always messed up. <laughs> Sometimes it's messed up in really strange ways. Um, so Bart Ehrman compares the early church to the telephone game where the messages were getting garbled constantly. But his analogy is very, very off base. And there's a couple of very good reasons why. First of all, is that Jesus' teachings were, of course, memorized early on. They weren't, um, they weren't written down immediately. However, this was a culture that was used to memorizing things because people were largely illiterate. And there were some aids to memorizing things. Jesus, when he taught, this is not evident in the English translations as much, but Jesus' teachings, 80 to 90% of them were in poetic form. So they were easy to remember. So if you're of a certain generation, and I say, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. It's very easy. You guys probably didn't learn that in your... Yeah, they're like, those are shaking their heads. They don't teach that one anymore, Pastor. <laughs> yeah. Poetry makes it easy to remember things. And you know this for how easy it is it for you to memorize your favorite pop songs. All the lyrics are poetry. So this is part of how Jesus made it easy for people to memorize his teachings. Okay? But here's another reality. In oral tradition cultures, cultures that rely on on oral tradition rather than the written word, the actual part of the brain that processes that is actually much better developed 
than it is in our culture because we rely on the written word. And people memorize things much better than we do. My wife actually studies a culture like that. The Gaelic-speaking culture of the Outer Isles of Scotland. Radio did not reach the Outer Isles of Scotland till the 1950s. So in the School of Scottish Studies in Edinburgh University in Scotland, they have wax cylinders of people who are illiterate telling stories because they didn't want the old stories to get lost. This is part of their culture. Well, they've got wax cylinders of of an old fisherman telling a story. For a half hour, he talks, and they record him talking. They came back a decade later and recorded him telling the same story. In a half hour story, he changed two words. much easier to memorize if that part of your brain is what has been developed by your cultural conditioning. Also in oral tradition cultures, there is flexibility in the way a story is recounted on any given occasion, but not the important parts of the story. You can't change the important parts of the story. If, you, if any of you have young children in your life, about their age, I, I encourage you to, to try this little experiment. Go home and try to tell them the story of Goldilocks and the Four Bears. <laughs> they will shout you down. <laughs> they know there's only three bears. They know that Papa Bear's porridge is too hot and Mama Bear's porridge is too cold. And stop messing up the story, Grandpa. <sighs> That's the way it works in an oral tradition culture. Now whether the house was made of brick or straw, I have no idea. Because it's not important in the story of Goldilocks. It's important in the story of the three little pigs. (laughs) So you can't change the important parts of the story. Now one study suggests that between 10 and 40% of the details in a given retelling could vary to meet the needs of the occasion. So if you're telling the story around a campfire at a Boy Scout function, it's different than telling the story here in church on a Sunday, so you might tell the story a little bit differently. Um, But stories were only told repeatedly if they were important. Stories were generally told in groups. And when you have a story being told in a group, if the storyteller messes up a central point, the listeners correct him or her instantly. Just like the little kids will correct you if you tell the the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears wrong. Now, what this means is a couple of things. As it comes to, as we come to the Gospels, interestingly enough, ten to forty percent of the details is the exact amount of variance found between similar stories in what are called the Synoptic Gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You probably notice those are a little different than the Gospel of John, which we heard from today. Um, I say ten to forty percent because scholars debate about how much difference there actually is. So here's what I think. Dr. Craig Blomberg said this really beautifully. He said, The disciples and the other early Christians had committed to memory a lot of what Jesus said and did, but they felt free to recount this information in various forms, always preserving the significance of Jesus' original teachings and deeds. And that's the key piece. Always preserving the significance of what he said and did. Now, Coming back, doesn't it, how would this be different from the telephone game? 
Well, first of all, the game's only fun if it gets messed up. If you've ever played the telephone game and someone gets it correct at the end of the line, the game ends almost instantly. It's no fun anymore. But also, the community self-correcting would ruin the game. You can't mess up the significance of the original stories if someone corrects you instantly. Things are told in public before they're written down. And this is the way the stories of Jesus were told. Primarily in the worship life of the community, just like we're doing right now. So that's the ability test. They definitely had the ability to preserve the historical details accurately. Now the consistency test is even less straightforward. And I had to learn a lot when I first studied this. Here's the thing about the consistency test. Do you think you would want to see everything be exactly the same from the, between the four Gospels? Not true. Because what happens... There, and we know there are variances between the Gospels. I lifted up some of those just a minute ago. So, what happens in a court of law when everyone has the same exact story? Here's, here's by the way, the ways that scholars um, explain these variances. They call, paraphrase, abridgment, explanatory additions, selection, and omission. Those are the things that lead to the differences we see between the Gospels. Okay? So, in a court of law, though, If different witnesses' stories coincide too well, what does that tell you? It tells you they talked before they got to the witness stand. That's the last thing you want. If four people observe a car accident, four people are going to tell the story slightly different. They were positioned differently when the accident happened. They had maybe, maybe one of them was wearing glasses and one wasn't. One was sitting in the shade and one wasn't. The story is going to get told differently by four different people if they tell the story exactly the same way you know they coordinated their evidence. And there was a guy named Marcion who was bothered by the fact that the four Gospels were different. So what he did was he took all four Gospels and squished them together into one Gospel and eliminated all the differences. And the church looked at him and said, nope, that's heresy. We want the original witnesses for that monstrosity you just concocted away and we're going to go with the four Gospels. They knew there were differences. They had a lot of these memorized. So they knew there were differences. So you actually want to see some differences It helps underscore the ability or the truthfulness of your witnesses. And I love what Simon Greenleaf said, uh, was a professor at Harvard Law School. There's a building dedicated in his name now. He said, there's enough of a discrepancy to show that there could have been no previous concert among them, and yet at the same time such substantial agreement as to show that they were all independent narrators of the same great transaction. They were all witnessing the same thing And they saw it from slightly different points of view. And finally, the cover-up test. The cover-up test. This is how you try... Another way you probe for the truthfulness of of a witness is... You ask yourself, were details glossed over that were hard to explain or made the storyteller look bad? Well, all the gospel stories... Uh, all of them recount stories that make the disciples look bad. We heard about that in today's gospel reading, right? Lord, we believe! And Jesus says, really? You're going to abandon me. Watch. <laughs> and sure enough, they do. Peter always looks like a doofus in the gospels. This is what, I love Peter. <laughs> he never gets it right. It gives me some hope for myself. <laughs> these, all these gospels 
recount stories that make the very people who are telling the stories look bad. They could have easily left those stories out, but they didn't because they wanted to recall the facts correctly. Moreover, they included things that Jesus said and did that caused problems. If they were just trying to invent some religion to sell to the Roman Empire, the easy thing to do would have been to eliminate some of Jesus' harder sayings. Make it a softer sell. There's preachers who do this now on television. Some of my favorite hard sayings by Jesus, Be perfect, as your Father in Heaven is perfect. That's great. What do I do now? Be perfect? How about this one? To look on a person in a way that encourages your lust. That's what it says. That, that's really what the more literal translation of those words means. That's the same as adultery. So Jesus takes the adultery rules from the Old Testament and tightens them up. Easier to leave all that stuff out if all you want to do is invent a religion and sell it to people. And even more significantly, times that could be misinterpreted as indicating that Jesus was not divine were included in the Gospels. Not only could be misinterpreted that way, they frequently were by heretics. Misinterpreted to indicate that Jesus was not divine. And here's a couple of them. Mark 6, 5, John 2, 4, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Hebrews 5, 9. We'll look at two of these briefly. Here's Mark 6, 4 through 6. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about all among the villages teaching. So, people could look at this and say, Well, he couldn't do a work because of their faith. He must not have been God. He couldn't do it in spite of their lack of faith. But they included that story because it happened that way. And here from the book of Hebrews, the preacher writes this. He says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, particularly, Romans and Greeks would misinterpret this passage. This uh, sermon, what we call the book of Hebrews, was originally preached to a Jewish congregation. Um, That's why I get how it gets its name. Well, Jews and Greeks use the words perfection differently, and even the the concept of learning is a little bit different there, especially as it relates to obedience. So, Greeks and Romans would read this and say, look, he had to learn something, and he was made perfect, he wasn't born perfect, he must not have been God. Well, it's a misinterpretation of the passage, but they still kept the passage in. They kept the passage in. Better to teach someone how to interpret it correctly than change the witness of the Scripture. The empty tomb is the certification to us that all that Jesus said and did was true and faithful. And we have that passed on to us by true and faithful witnesses. All the tests that you can give to a witness, they pass with flying colors. And it's upon that empty tomb that our faith has its foundation.
When we hear these marvelous stories of the vision of the new heavens and the new earth we heard from the book of Revelation, our hope of getting there, our hope that that vision is true and that there will come a time when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes is founded in a hole in the ground where no body was found. And we can trust the stories of that because the witnesses are faithful and true. Jürgen Moltmann, a very important theologian from the last century, said this. He said, Christian faith is resurrection faith or it cannot be Christian faith any longer. We trust the witnesses of those, the resurrection who passed on the story faithfully to us so that our faith can be formed in a true and good way. And we can trust the true Christ for our true salvation. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Gracious God, we thank you that the scriptures are filled not only with amazing visions of prophets, given as this was to John, but filled with testimony about things you have done in a concrete way in history. Where if we could have been there, we could have observed it for ourselves. Coming as we do at a later day, we must rely on others who saw what you did. Blessed Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to know that their testimonies are true and so that we can build not just a faith for the end of time and the end of our life upon you, but a living faith that builds our lives upon you. Obedience to your Son because He knows the way of true life. Indeed, He is risen. And we give you thanks for that truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Be thou my best thought in the day and the night. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my life.